Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. COVID-19 has caused fear and uncertainties in our lives. Misinformation and misguidance helped fuel this anxiety and divisiveness. Dr. Phil Grant will help simplify how we could coexist with this virus since there are no definitive treatment as of yet and no vaccine availability until perhaps another 6 to 12 months. Dr. Grant will also talk about the science behind masking, physical distancing, and hand washing. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I'm so pleased to have one of my colleagues join me today, Phil Grant. Phil Grant is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Stanford, and he is also the director of the Stanford HIV program. He has a research interest in both managing acute and chronic viral infections. Welcome, Phil, to the show, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Julieta. How are you? Very well. Thank you. So we'll just dive in, right? So, Phil, it's interesting, uh, your interest in acute and chronic viral diseases. Could you just give us examples of acute diseases and chronic viral diseases? You know, generally, I've done a fair amount of work over the years with HIV and hepatitis. Uh, so I started being interested in medicine in 1993. I remember very clearly uh, with certain uh, kind of the media with um, HIV being very common and then people I knew also having HIV. So I ended up going into HIV care. Uh, and so it took me a while and then I got into um, doing some research in HIV. But I've also pivoted into other uh, chronic viral infections like uh, like hepatitis C, I've done some things in, in Rwanda with both HIV and hepatitis C. And I've also been doing some things with influenza. Uh, so when the coronavirus epidemic started uh, here in California, it's something that seemed to fit with what I was doing previously. Oh, thank you for uh, sharing that. So we are right in the midst of the pandemic. And I know it, it really uh, had been a uh, unprecedented pandemic uh, that really changed every facet in our lives. So take us back, if you could still remember the early HIV era and the pandemic and the fear generated uh, by that and compare it and juxtapose that experience to now with the pandemic. Yeah, I think there's lots of similarities. Um, you know, some of the stigma associated with having HIV is something that I think people are feeling a little bit with having a coronavirus, especially early on uh, when, you know, people of color were primarily affected with a coronavirus. It also wasn't that different from sexual minorities being affected with HIV early. In terms of the overall fear in society there, you know, this predated a little bit my involvement in HIV in terms of the 80s. You know, people were for, weren't really clear how HIV was being uh, transmitted. And so people 
in, but I've even seen this in my own patients, you know, one of my uh, lovely older women who, who got HIV through injection drug, drug use, you know, she wants to help take out care of her uh, grandchildren, uh, but her, um, you know, the parents of her, her, her son and then her daughter-in-law doesn't want her to take care of uh, her grandkid because of uh, fear of transmitting HIV, when in fact, you know, as long as, as she ever has blood, you know, she can wear gloves, uh, but there's a lot of the same uh, fear, you know, some of my patients who had coronavirus, you know, months later when they're no longer infectious, people are still don't want to stay near them. They tell me, you know, stay away from me, even if they're wearing a mask. So I think there's a lot of um, same types of issues, a lot of fear and uncertainty around how to catch it, how to prevent it, kind of thinking that the people who have it are somehow less than other people. Yeah, understandably. I mean, even for me, as a medical professional, you know, here at home, people are avoiding me. My neighbors are avoiding me. And I actually, I had one of my neighbors said, oh, don't visit Julieta because she is probably infected or she's always exposed. So, so it's really hard. We're discriminated against. And I know in other countries, so there's still a lot of fear about that. And I recall I was an intern when HIV was just beginning. And that's how ancient I am. And there was a lot of fear among us, our house staff, because we will walk into the room with like, we had this outfit, like we will go to the moon. And uh, one of our co-interns got stuck with the needle and we were just so devastated. We didn't know what to do. Uh, it, it, we were so fearful that uh, she's going to die. So that fear and the fear now with COVID-19, you're right, there's some parallel. Um, so just to dispel myths about COVID-19 and to further be able to coexist with this virus because treatment is nowhere in sight yet, take us to the basic biology of COVID-19, its transmission, so we will better understand how to protect ourselves, and then outline the science of the transmission and what is the science behind masking social distancing and hand washing a lot of questions right so it's a pretty straightforward respiratory disease it's um, secreted through respiratory secretions so it's mainly in a droplet form so that's relatively big so that's where uh, we feel like within six feet if you're further away from someone that you're unlikely to get the infection so that's the idea of uh, spatial uh, distancing is if you're not with someone uh, for that distance. It's been shown that in some rare cases, it can be more what we call aerosolized, being in much smaller uh, particles like tuberculosis. So then it could spread across a larger distance. But for the vast majority, especially on the outdoor environment, it's spread by droplets. So if you're with out, outside of six feet, you're going to be safe. You know, indoors, you know, if you're in a, in a, conference or in a, a big family gathering indoors and it was not good uh, ventilation it could spread further uh, but for the most part it's a droplet uh, the masking is also very straightforward it's hard to understand why it got to people feel very uncomfortable just imagine you're sneezing and you have a mask on your droplets aren't going to go as far as if if you didn't have a mask on and similarly if you had a mask on you know you would wouldn't be inhaling other people's droplets as easily. So I think the, the masking, uh, whether it's cloth, a well-made, we, we emphasize having more than one layer cloth, a mask, but a, a well, 
a well-made cloth mask works works well. There was just a lot of uh, confusion uh, when there was a shortage of um, surgical grade masks early in the infection. There we weren't encouraged in the United States people to use masks, but now it's that people have access to um, cloth masks. It's it's really encouraged for people to wear that when they, for the most part, most of the time. You know, for me, when I walk to the park, it's a very quiet walk, and I don't need a mask. I have one with me, but I don't always wear it. When I walk downtown, I always have a mask on because it's going to be more crowded. So I think it shouldn't be so complicated. You know, it's hard if you're working outside in a hot day to keep a mask on all day. Uh, but I think for the most part, uh, that's the story with the masks. It, they're, they're all in terms of like most infections, uh, there's an amount of virus one needs to be exposed to to get infected. So that's where the statement of, you know, you have to be in close contact for 10 minutes talking to someone. So the shorter the interaction, the better. You know, there are cases, uh, it's not a black and white thing, so you could get infected with a much shorter interaction. But, you know, the times that people are generally, most of the infections are occurring in people's workplaces, where they're spending a lot of time, or people's households, uh, less commonly just the supermarket and things like that, but it can also happen in those settings as well. I guess I should answer too, um, around healthcare settings. Now that we have, uh, earlier in the epidemic, there wasn't a lot, a lot of um, personal protective equipment, uh, but now that there is within the hospital, we're not seeing that much transmission among hospital workers, so, so that's good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, we're talking about the, you know, the amount or size of the inoculum, which is like how much you get upon exposure. Uh, could you kind of like help us understand asymptomatic people being able to transmit the virus and why, you know, is that why we also have to have masks on even confronting other people who are asymptomatic? That's right. Yeah. So I think um, this has been a lot harder to control than the previous SARS uh, pandemics uh, with with um, SARS-CoV-1, which was you know several years ago, as well as another uh, coronavirus, MERS-CoV. Both those people generally were infectious only when they're symptomatic. So it's much easier to control it because you can localize who's infectious, do good contact tracing among those people. Interestingly, this virus, you're most symptomatic or, or you're sharing the most virus even before you're symptomatic. So maybe a half a day before you're symptomatic, that's when you have the highest viral load. And you can be some, and you can shed virus, you know, even up to a week before you actually have symptoms. You know, even there are some people who are asymptomatic, never develop symptoms uh, that all are also shedding virus. So people make a distinction between pre-symptomatic, meaning you are later going to develop symptoms. But at the time you think you're asymptomatic, obviously, because you don't have symptoms uh, or the idea asymptomatic, meaning you never will become symptomatic. So both people who are pre-symptomatic, meaning they are going to get uh, some symptoms later on, uh, maybe as soon as a day or two later, uh, or people who are asymptomatic can both be highly uh, infectious. Uh, so I think, um, you know, the similarly to the idea is when you're in your, in your common environment, uh, if you're in, the, in an area where there's a, a fair amount of spread, you really have to consider almost anyone to potentially have infection. So even if they're your lovely mother, your uh, grandmother, uh, uh, or your best friend, uh, and they look very well, you, sh- you should also still take precautions uh, as much as you can. 
So that is the value of the mask, no matter what, right? So, uh, and the more yeah. you are in an enclosed space, the worse it is. And it's better to be outdoor, of course, with the smoke that we recently faced in California, being outdoor also was was devastating for that, like two to three weeks time that we were here in California. So now we would leave the, um, the science behind all of those um, uh, rituals that we're doing that we should promote. What, uh, what could you tell us about a treatment now? Is it really treatment? Is there a treatment? And what are those? And yeah. what is the data behind yeah, that? Yeah, so I think we made, um, yeah. So I think we made the analogy earlier around HIV, you know, just in terms of probably the most recent large pandemic that the world has faced uh, in my mind was HIV. And that came, uh, you know, the first cases were described in 1981, although there were cases that were present, but not understood even before that. But really, 81 is when it hit the world. And for years, there was no treatment. You know, it wasn't until 1987 that AZT became available. Uh, and then it, even AZT and the other early medications really didn't change the course of the disease dramatically. They helped a little bit. They extended people's lives, but they weren't uh, game changers. It wasn't until eight years later, uh, 1995, that there was combination therapy, or people call it HART or ART, uh, depending where you are. Uh, so it took 14 years from the early uh, description of the disease to have combinant, you know, effective therapy. And now, as people know, people live very healthy lives and they actually don't transmit to other people when they're effectively on antiretroviral therapy. So that, that uh, if you think about that from now, we're right now, the first descriptions of, of coronavirus uh, really around, dis, you know, the first cases were in December 2019. That's why we're calling it COVID-19 as opposed to COVID-20, but really we didn't see much of it until 2020. Uh, and China started to put out information on it uh, middle of January. So we're only 10 months, really, I guess, nine months into the pandemic right now. Uh, right now we have medications that you might think a little bit are like AZT, like remdesivir is an antiviral. It's a polymerase inhibitor. It, it definitely uh, shortens the time one is ill. Uh, there've been several studies uh, that have looked at whether it reduces mortality and it doesn't appear to reduce mortality, uh, but it does reduce the time someone's come in the hospital by approximately four days. So it's not a game changer, but it does improve uh, people's overall condition. Uh, for more ill patients, uh, just like with a lot of other conditions, uh, steroids can, be, can reduce death because you have not only the virus is impact on the body, you have also the inflammation in the body that can cause problems in the lungs. So the uh, dexamethasone people have seen uh, have reduced mortality. So those are really our, our bread and butter um, medications that are being used. There's other things that are been studied uh, that are still in the process or some things that are probably uh, not effective that have been studied as well. So give us a bird's eye view of monoclonal antibody and uh, you know other antibody treatment out there. Yeah, so the idea would be um, the same, several different companies have produced uh, antibodies uh, to the outside of uh, the virus. So they call it a, um, a, call it coronavirus because it looks like a crown. There's a spikes and those spikes basically attach to a part of a cell within the lung and then basically causes that to go into lung tissue and then cause lung damage. So different antibody, different companies that produce antibodies to those spikes that hopefully will prevent it from going into the cell and causing lung, lung damage. Uh, the two companies uh, are Eli Lilly and another company called Regeneron. Uh, Regeneron um, uh, had, some, 
has done antibodies for um, Ebola and was shown to be effective for Ebola. Uh, that's the same one uh, the president received uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago when he was ill, even though it's not been approved, it's still in clinical studies. So I think we won't see definitive results on either the Eli Lilly drug or the um, Regeneron medication for several months. Uh, the Eli Lilly drug is on hold. The study is on pause right now. Uh, the active uh, one study that's caused through the NIH and paused right now. Uh, they're just making sure it looks safe uh, from one uh, adverse event that was reported. Um, but I think they're both promising. And, um, you know, but you don't know what's going to work until you see. You know, in HIV, there were so many false starts about medications people thought were going to work but didn't or had too many side effects. Uh, so I think uh, people have lots of hopes for things. But people have to remember, we've only been in this epidemic or pandemic only 10 months, uh, and, and it's going to take a while to really get out of it from a you know medical standpoint. And until we do that, public health is going to be by far the most important thing. So, um, but is it uh, accurate to say that the antibodies will work early in the disease, will work better early in the disease before further viral re replication? I think that's what people think. We, we will see if that's true. Uh, the reason we will think that is because it takes a while for the body to develop antibodies. And some early studies with the antibodies have shown people have a better response if they have a negative antibody in their own body. So early on, your body is working really hard to produce antibodies, and then the virus is really more or less replicating uh, unchecked. Uh, so you, giving an antibody, an artificial outside antibody can prevent that replication. That's the theory. And so we'll see. So both the studies are looking at early, people who are early in disease, not this late inflammatory disease, but kind of the early stage, which is probably more caused by just the virus replicating. That's good to know. Take us now to this hype of acceleration of viral, uh, uh, the vaccine against this virus. So I remember going to a conference, this was in 1997, to when I was a medical student on HIV vaccines. People were saying it was right around the corner. And actually in 1984, the uh, Department of Human Health Service person in the United States says we should have a vaccine for HIV within a couple of years. So I think the predictions, obviously, we don't have an effective vaccine for HIV, and it's been how many years? Almost 30 years now, almost mm -hmm. 40 years now, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say this disease is easier to develop a vaccine for uh, than a chronic infection because a body pr produces, is able to control it itself. We're just trying to trick the body uh, to produce an antibody to, a, to just basically a part of the virus. Uh, so it should be possible to produce, have the body produce antibodies to, to spike protein. Uh, there has to be a lot of studies uh, done uh, to show uh, the vaccine is safe. Uh, you know, we probably can get the body to produce spike protein by giving, by various different methods. I mean, I'm sorry, antibodies to spike protein, but, you know, it, we have to have a vaccine that's very safe. You know, if you're going to give this vaccine to billions of people around the world, you know, we can't have a, we have to have a very low rate of side effects. So uh, several of the studies that have started actually have paused to make sure that any of the side effects that have occurred are not, uh, are not related to the medication. And if they are, are not serious. So um, I think it's a lot of time, you know, people get, are very, want things to happen very fast, but it may take, you know, I would expect that, you know, we won't, you won't be able to go into your local pharmacy to get a vaccine until some point in 2021. 
and maybe it won't be until summer of 2021 that it'll be mass produced enough that the average person can go to their pharmacy and get a or their doctor's office and get a vaccine that works and we know is safe. It's not just the efficacy of the vaccine, but safety. And that's what's uh, like holding the progression of this, right? So it has to be really safe to a massive number of people. Yeah, I also want to give you an example of like the polio vaccine, which is probably one of the greatest health you know, successes in the United States in the 50s. And you know, that, at that point, polio was also a major health concern. People were, children were getting paralyzed and dying at that point. Uh, Salk was the person who was the first one to develop the oral polio vaccine. And, you know, the studies from the time they started to the time they ended was, was over a year. So it's, it's going to take a little bit of time to get the data. And then it turned out to be quite effective, you know, but, you know, you really have to be, I, th- I think uh, we all have to be very confident that the vaccine is safe as well as effective. And there's really no way to rush that. You can go fast, but you can't rush. So I think that's the, even though there's a big, you know, for some reason, a lot of this political stuff has entered into health, which is a bit unique, you know, in my professional life that, that there's been such a political statement on. I think it's almost like, um, you know, one team is rooting for and against this virus, or I don't know how to put it, but as opposed to everyone being focused on controlling the virus as well as keeping the economy rolling as best as possible. Yeah, that is very interesting that everything from mask to vaccine are so politicized, you know. And uh, so talking about that, how how would you think that us uh, medical professionals and scientists, how could we help the public restore or the public and or the leaders restore their uh, trust and respect for science um, and, and sound data. Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, we're living in a conspiracy theory world. You know, I, uh, there's just so much misinformation, not just on health things, but on other, other things. And so I think a lot of people don't have the education necessarily separate like myth from fact, given how much information is, uh, is out there on the internet and things people hear. Uh, but I think it's a pretty straightforward disease. That's why it's so confusing to me. You know, maybe two out of 100 people who get this will die. Many people won't be so sick. And it spreads from person to person. And using a mask can protect you as well as staying, staying socially distanced. I don't think anyone's saying that we want to shut down businesses or schools. I think we all want people to get back to my daughter just started her school uh, this uh, Monday. I think we're all very happy, but they have a lot of precautions to keep the kids safe as well as the the parents uh, and the grandparents of the kids uh, safe as well when they come home. Uh, so I think to me, I think just turning down the volume maybe as well as I think we do have a pretty uniform message uh, in terms of the medical world. There are, of course, people have arguments around what the balance of health policy versus whether certain things should be closed or not, whether fans should be allowed in the sport stadiums, and if so, how many those are all questions that are probably not, not, not things that doctors necessarily have any expertise. We can tell you how it's transmitted. And I think people have to make the decisions about how to do the things we need to do as a society most safely. Okay, so final message for our listeners, Phil. I think the final message is to try to live your life as fully as possible in a difficult time. Have your friends over for dinner but have them outside and have uh, at a park, uh, maybe set up two blankets at a certain distance apart. Or if you have a backyard, you could sit two tables at a certain distance. You know, I think 
uh, have your kids see their friends, uh, but have them see their friends with masks. Uh, make sure, um, I think those are two kind of things that I would emphasize is we're, I don't think medical science, I don't think it's as complicated as people say. Uh, we're not saying don't live your life. We're just saying live your life as fully as possible with the given rules that we have, knowing uh, that there are risks to uh, being in a closed place with lots of people. Uh, so, and also sign up for volunteer, volunteer for vaccine studies, because we all will need uh, as many volunteers. And, you know, there's lots of safety rules within these vaccine studies to protect the participant. Uh, so we're running one here at Stanford. Um, and so I'm hoping that, um, you know, people, I guess, thirdly, so I'll say one is live your life fully. Secondly, follow the rules. They're there for a reason. Uh, thirdly, I'd say uh, sign up for the vaccine studies to support them. And fourthly, be patient. You know, we are going to get through this. Uh, we've only been, you know, even though it seems like a very long time, it's been about half a year and six more months if we're all patient, we'll be in a lot better place. There you go. Thank you so much, Phil, for <laughs> your messages and, and like uh, really translating this, what we call a science to a practical solution for to live our lives day to day. So thank you so much. There you go. Mask, mask, mask. Thank you, Julieta. Bye. <laughs> okay, bye, Julieta. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.